Friend. What's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the human race? You can search the annals of human philosophical writings and you will not find an answer to that question. You can search the halls of academia in any age of human history and you will not find an answer to that question. What is wrong with the human race? But one statement coming from the lips of Jesus Christ answers that question. And it's an answer that has been demonstrated to be true for billions of people over the millennia that we have existed as a human race. The fact that Jesus, in one sentence, gives an answer to the question, what's wrong with the human race? That alone should be reason for people to bow down to Jesus Christ as Lord and to affirm Christianity as the one true religion. That answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the human race is found in our text this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Last week we studied verses 1 to 13. And from that portion we learned that the Jewish religious leaders are again on the attack against Jesus and his disciples. Now their enmity had not ceased. It was just simmering and waiting for another opportunity to attack him. Apparently, Jesus' popularity has grown to the place where they're hearing about him down in headquarters in Jerusalem. And so the Jerusalem leaders of the Jewish church send a delegation of Pharisees and scribes, maybe some, some crack troops, some especially sharp scribes, to confront Jesus. But they need to find something to confront. And when they observe Jesus' disciples eating their food with unwashed hands, they say, aha, we've got it. We're going to find him to be a sinner because his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Now, understand, as I said last week, this was not a problem of hygiene. It was not a problem of physical cleanliness. It was a matter of ceremonial uncleanness. You see, the Pharisees, and under their influence, all of the Jews had a custom. They had a tradition of washing their hands before eating as a means of purity. Now, when I mention the word tradition, you should understand that that's not a bad word in itself. It's a neutral word. The word tradition simply means that which is handed down. A tradition is good or bad based on its origin, its source. So Paul could speak to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and say, you, you, you kept the traditions as I've delivered them to you. Well, what were Paul's traditions? Well, in Galatians 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The traditions Paul passed on were from God. They were the word of God. He got his traditions the same place he got his commission from God and from Jesus. They were good traditions because they were the word of God. But this practice the Jews had of ceremonial hand-washing was not a command of God. It was a contrivance of man. It was a tradition of the elders. It was a rule that originated with the rabbis and was passed down by oral tradition and eventually put into writing in the Jewish Talmud. It was really part of a whole system of man-made rules 
devised by the rabbis that manipulated the law of God and, and embellished the law of God and made the law of God doable. That was the religion of the Jews. It was very formalistic, very externalistic. It was very bound in tradition. Not the tradition from God, but the tradition of men. And as we saw last week, Jesus has a strong indictment for these religious traditionalists and formalists. He names their basic problem. He says, you're hypocrites. A hypocrite was a play actor, one who wore a mask in a Greek play. You guys are play actors. You're hypocrites. You're pretending to be on the outside what you are not on the inside. He then explains their problem more deeply. He says, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far away from me. And then he goes on to say how they send away the word of God. They neglect the word of God. You see, if your heart is far away from God, you're not going to want to hear from God. And so if you're pushing God away, you're going to push his word away. And yet they were religious. Man is incurably religious. And they wanted to appear as religious. So what do you do when your heart hates God and your heart hates the word of God, and yet you want to be religious? What they did was they substituted the traditions of men, the rules and regulations that came from the rabbis. That was their religion. And it was a system that Jesus condemned. You see, in reality, their religious system of man-made traditions was not bringing them to God. It was protecting them from God. It was a religious fig leaf to hide their hearts from God and allow them to run from God and his truth while still maintaining a facade of religiosity. And then Jesus gave an illustration of, of this kind of religion. He, he used the illustration of korban. Korban was a practice where a Jewish person called to honor father and mother could say, mom and dad, I know you have financial needs, and, but the money that I would have given to help you, I've devoted to God. I've, I've given as korban. And then they really didn't have to give it to the temple, but they could no longer give it for its original purpose. So they got out of giving their money to their parents and keeping it, and yet appeared religious. I've devoted my money to God. And Jesus gives that as an example. And he says, you do many such things. Jesus had nothing but scorching condemnation for the religion of the Pharisees and scribes. It was hollow. It was hypocritical. It was useless religion. What follows now is a scenario in which Jesus, fresh from this confrontation with his enemies, wants to bring a lesson to the multitudes. So follow as I read what is our text today, verses 14 to 23 of Mark 7. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. 
And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. I want us to see three things from this passage. The concern of Jesus assumed, the urgency of Jesus expressed, and then the crucial principle of Jesus' teaching stated and explained. The concern of Jesus assumed. You see, the dialogue and confrontation he had with those Pharisees and scribes was not done publicly. It was done privately. And so he calls the multitude to himself after coming from that controversy with the Jewish leaders. says in verse 14, after he called the crowd to him. Why did he do that? What was his concern in gathering the crowd? Well, it's not explicitly stated, but I think it can be safely assumed. Jesus cared about the souls of people. He cared about their bodies as well, but he cared about their souls mainly. Remember, he fed 5,000 plus people, but why did he feed them? Because he had spent such a long time teaching them that it got late and they couldn't find food to eat. His primary concern is to teach people the truth about God, and he does care about their bodies as well. He's concerned about this crowd of Jewish people. Remember what he said earlier? or what is said about him when he looked upon the crowd of Jewish people, he looked at them with compassion because they were as sheep without a shepherd. Now, it wasn't that they were untaught and unshepherded. It was more a problem that they were wrongly taught and wrongly shepherded. And when that's the case, you have to do more than just positive and formative instruction. You have to do some corrective instruction as well. When there's false teaching, you have to deconstruct before you reconstruct. A good illustration is our kitchen project right now. As you know, we've just gotten new cabinets in, beautiful Amish-made, Amish-installed kitchen cabinets. My wife loves them. But before we could put those cabinets in, we had to tear out the old cabinets and in our case, we had soffits, and Brother Steve helped me immensely. A lot of dust, a lot of work, a lot of lumber to tear down the old in order to build up the new. Well, when you got false teaching, you got to tear down the old, and you got to then build up the new. And here Jesus is coming from this fresh encounter with his enemies, with a fresh reminder of what their religion was about. It was all about man-made tradition and rules that kept them from God, I think we can safely assume why Jesus gathered the crowd. Jesus was the perfect law keeper. And what is the law? What is it reduced to? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus perfectly loved God, his Father. And, the, and what the Pharisees were doing with the word of God no doubt filled him with indignation and zeal for his Father's glory. Instead of receiving the word of God, they were sending the word of God away in favor of their traditions. And Jesus' heart would have burned with a zeal and indignation over what they were doing to his Father's word. But the law is also fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus loved his neighbors. 
and it would have inflamed his holy heart with indignation what these false teachers were doing to the multitude and, and heaping upon them all the traditions of men and not teaching them the word of God. We can assume that Jesus gathered the multitude because he wanted to warn them and caution them about the errors of the Pharisees, under whose authority they were. Friends, this should be a reminder to us that part of a pastor's duty is to warn against the errors to which his people are most exposed and to which they are most prone. Now, let me say this on balance. Every pastor needs to guard against a ministry that is predominantly negative, always critiquing, always criticizing, always finding fault with others. That can be a symptom of spiritual pride and elitism, as if to say, you know, we're the only church that really has it together. Everybody else is wrong here or there. A pastor has to guard against that. You don't want to have a ministry that's predominantly negative and critical of everybody else. On the other hand, there are real errors and real soul-damning dangers in the world in every age. And pastors need to expose those errors to protect their people. I thought about the times that Jesus introduced his teaching with beware. Let me just take you through some of the bewares of Jesus. Matthew 6 and verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. In chapter 7 and verse 15 of Matthew, Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In chapter 10 of Matthew and verse 17, Jesus gives another beware. He says, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. In Matthew 16, 6, Jesus again warns when he says, Matthew 16, 6, and Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But not only our Lord Jesus, but the apostle Paul warned the churches against error, against false teachers. In Acts chapter 20, when he had gathered the elders at Ephesus, and he's about to leave them, probably never to see them again. He says in Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In the next verse, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In other places, he warns in Philippians 3, beware of the dogs, beware of the false circumcision. In 2 Timothy 4, he also warns against false teaching. And remember that the description of a pastor, an elder, is twofold. Titus 1, 9 and 10, he must give instruction in sound doctrine, but he also must refute those who contradict it. There's a positive aspect, teaching aspect, but there's also a protective aspect whereby the faithful pastor needs to warn against false teaching. And here we have Jesus, the truly good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd being a model, being a, a pattern for pastors like me in warning the people against the soul-damning errors of the false religion of his day. But you know, not only pastors, but all of you as the people of God are to walk as Jesus walked, aren't you? Is there a place for you to warn against false teaching? Do any of you know anyone who's involved in one of the non-Christian cults 
Do any of you know anyone who has been sucked in by the smooth tongue but devilish teaching of a Joel Osteen or an Oprah Winfrey? Or by the ideological errors gaining ground in our day of social justice and critical theory which undermine the gospel? You know people being sucked into those errors? What is your duty? It is to lovingly and winsomely warn them and to point them in a better direction. Jesus gathered the crowd because he had a fresh reminder of the tradition-bound religion of the Pharisees, and he wanted to warn the people against it. But next, look at the text and see the urgency of Jesus expressed. Why did Jesus gather the crowds? Because he wanted to warn them. But especially when I translated this in the Greek, the it jumped out at me, the emphasis here in verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. He doesn't always say that. All of his teaching is true. All of his teaching is to be taken seriously. But on this occasion, he's especially urgent and insistent. Listen to me. William Hendrickson, the commentator, Here's in this a solemn call of Yahweh in the Old Testament in passages like, uh, as, uh, um, like Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. O Israel, if you would listen to me. There's an urgent desire on the part of Jesus to be heard. And notice he says, listen to me, all of you. All of you. He wants all the people under the hearing of his word, to give heed to what he is about to say. There's an urgency to what he's saying. Why? Because he's not talking about some secondary or tertiary doctrine, something that really doesn't matter. You know, there are a lot of issues in the Christian faith where Christians can disagree and it's not a heaven and hell matter, right? A lot of issues that will not threaten your soul where Christians can have disagreement. But there are some issues on which the salvation of your soul depends. This was such an issue. See, the question here was defilement. Your disciples are eating with unwashed hands, and they're, therefore they're unclean. They're sinners. Oh, the problem is, you know, this ceremony that you're, of, of the, from the elders that you're not obeying. That's their diagnosis of the human problem. You see, this is a serious matter because if you get the diagnosis of the human problem wrong, you will get the prescription for the cure wrong. That's why this is serious. That's why Jesus says, listen to me, all of you. I'm going to show you the difference between true religion and the false religion of the Pharisees. And so the final point is we want to look at the crucial principle of Jesus' teaching stated and explained. What does he want to get across to the crowd? Well, again, the issue is defilement. What makes a person unclean in the sight of God? That was the issue. That's where the Pharisees and scribes had engaged him. Your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. They're violating the rules of the rabbis, and they're sinners. So Jesus is going to Tell us what really makes a person unclean in the sight of God. He's going to give the source of defilement, and then he's going to give us some specimens of defilement. First, the source of defilement, what it is not. Look at verse 15. 
there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. What Jesus is saying is, the food you eat cannot pollute your soul. The Pharisees were all about ceremonies and external things as polluting your soul. And Jesus said, no, no, it's not what comes out of, outside of you into you. It's what comes out of you from the inside. Now you say, but wait a minute. Didn't God prescribe under the Old Testament that certain foods were clean and certain foods were unclean? Certain animals were clean and certain animals were unclean. Yes, he did. But why did he do that? He did that ultimately to point to help his people become discriminating and realize just as there are clean and unclean foods, there's clean and unclean in the moral realm. These were pictures given to his people in their infancy to teach them that, that there's discernment needed in the moral realm. There are some things morally clean and morally unclean. And they violated it not in the sense that something unclean would physically pollute them, but they were wrong because they disobeyed God who had prescribed it. And so Jesus says, first of all, in parabolic form, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. Well, his disciples didn't get it. And so Jesus has to repeat it a little more fully when he says in verses um, 18 and following, are you not lacking in understanding also? Are you lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Literally, it goes into the latrine. Thus, he declared all foods clean. You see, he's being a little more graphic here and saying, you're not polluted from something outside yourself. When you eat certain food, it goes into your mouth, it goes into your stomach, and then it goes into the latrine. It never touches your heart. It never touches your soul. Now, he said at this point, Jesus declared all foods clean. What does that mean? He means that even though it was right to follow dietary codes under the Old Testament, that is now being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He declares all foods clean. So he says what the source of defilement is not. Nothing coming from the outside into you is going to defile your heart or your soul. But then he tells us what the source of defilement is. Verse 15. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then more fully in verse 20, and he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed. And then he gives the list. Friends, here is Jesus' grand teaching as to the source of defilement. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the human race? Jesus tells us right here what has alluded Great academics and philosophers, because they're not guided by the word of God, did not elude Jesus. The problem of the human race is the heart of man. Uncleanness doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. 
And by heart, of course, he's not referring to the physical blood pump. He's referring to your inward, immaterial being. Do you know that the, the word heart probably is the most comprehensive word for the, the inner man, inner person? The heart comprehends the mind. And so in Acts chapter 5, we read Peter saying, Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? The heart conceives ideas. It, it has thoughts. The heart includes the mind. It includes your will. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says, Man believes with his heart. He entrusts himself to Christ and to God with his heart. The heart involves the will. The heart involves the emotions. I'm in my devotions in Joshua, and now it, it, God is putting the fear of the Israelites in the hearts of these nations, and frequently it says their hearts melted within. That was their emotions. They were terrified of the Jews because they knew what God was doing on behalf of the Jews, and their hearts were melting. That's their affections. Conscience is part of the heart. Hebrews 10, 22, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The heart represents the totality of what you are on the inside. And in saying this, Jesus is making one of the most profound and far-reaching statements in all of the word of God. He's saying the core problem of the human race, your core problem and my core problem is our heart. It is not at bottom your diet. It's not your parents, it's not your upbringing, it's not your peer group, it's not your environment, it's not society in general that has made you the way you are, it's not wrong teaching, it's not a lack of education, it's not a chemical imbalance at bottom, it's not even the devil himself. Now to be sure, all of those things exert a powerful influence upon us. They can be a, a tremendous formative influence upon us. But they are not the causative influence. The cause of defilement is in the person himself, not in his body chemistry, not in his brain, but in his heart. We have bad hearts. Listen to some of the things the Bible says about the human heart. I won't give you the references for the sake of time. Here are some characterizations of the heart, who you are in the essence of your being and I by nature. The Bible talks about a heart as hard as stone. The imaginations of the heart run riot. It talks about a stubborn heart, a people who err in their heart, a perverse heart, an arrogant heart, a heart that devises wicked plans, proud in heart, haughty heart, a heart that rages against the Lord, a wicked heart, a deceitful heart, a desperately wicked heart, a dull heart, foolish and darkened heart, an evil, unbelieving heart. And Peter refers to hearts trained in greed. But we really don't need to go outside of this passage to learn about the human heart. Because after telling us that the source of our problems is our hearts, Jesus gives some specimens of the defilement. And he has this catalog, this list of particular things that come out of our heart. Let's just briefly review them. And you know, as I thought about it, it's not even right to refer to the heart as a cesspool, because when you do that, you're offending the cesspool. Why do I say that? Because the cesspool is simply a repository. It's a dumping ground. 
The heart is not just a dumping ground. The heart is the source. It's the fountain. Our hearts are worse than a cesspool. You're offending the cesspool when you call your heart a, cess uh, a cesspool. It's worse than that. It's the fountain of all these things. What things come out of our hearts by nature? Evil thoughts. Isn't it appropriate that he begins with evil thoughts, dialogismos, dialogues, evil dialogues, because so much starts with our thought life. The words you say begin with your thoughts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things you do and I do begin with our thoughts, our dialogues within. So he begins with evil thoughts, fornications. That's the word porneia, from which we get pornography. It's a general word for every form of sexual perversion. Anything outside of the pure use of our sexuality within the bonds and bounds of marriage is porneia. It's illicit. It's perverse. They come out of our hearts. Thefts. Everything from bank robbery to petty thievery, shoplifting, even loafing at work and robbing your employer of time is a form of theft. Murders. And remember how Jesus said, if you just hate your brother in your heart and just angry with me, you're a murderer. We're all murderers by that standard. Adulteries, the violation of the marriage bond, extending, as Jesus says, to lustful looks. If you just lust in your heart for a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Coveting, a greedy desire to have more than we have been given. A dissatisfaction with what God has given us but a, a greediness to have what belongs to someone else, coveting your neighbor's house or car or husband or wife or their possessions or their privileges. I'm not happy. You haven't given me enough, God, and I need that and I demand that. Coveting comes out of our hearts. Wickedness, a general word that covers all malicious deeds. Deceit, the falsehood by which we seek to trick or manipulate people for our own advantage, even as we were talking about in the counseling class this past Tuesday, even telling a half-truth, but representing it as the whole truth, becomes an untruth. So many ways that we can subtly be deceptive and speak falsehood. Sensuality, a lack of self-control by which we give free vent to our perverse impulses. Envy, literally an evil eye, by which we look on others and we begrudge what they have because we're envious. We want what they have. We don't want them to have it. We want to have it. And so we look on them with an evil eye. Slander. It's the word in Greek, blasphemia. Doing injury to another, defaming a person's character, reproaching a person in their good name, either to their face or behind their back. Pride. Pride is a swollen estimate of your own goodness, your own power by which you look down on others and you treat them with contempt foolishness. He caps it off with foolishness. That's a good summary, isn't it? We're not born into this world with wisdom. We're born with foolishness. And it starts in infancy. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So brothers and sisters, Jesus, counteracting the false teaching of the Pharisees who said, yeah, it's all about what you eat. It's all about whether you've washed your hands or not. You do the right ceremonies and you're clean. You violate the ceremonies, you're unclean. Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. You're superficial externalists. The real problem is the problem of the heart, the center of our being. 
That's the source of defilement. Let me draw a couple of conclusions and then make some applications. Conclusion number one, the chief source of man's moral uncleanness in the sight of God is his heart. It's his heart. It's not his diet. It's not whether he performs or doesn't perform certain ceremonies. His problem is not the society in which he was raised, not his environment. It's not nurture and upbringing. It's not bad chemistry, and it's not a rather bad company or biochemistry. That's not the source of our problem. The heart of mankind's problem is his heart. The entire immaterial inner being corrupted by sin ever since man fell into sin in the garden. So conclusion number one, the chief source of man's moral uncleanness in the sight of God is his heart. It's my heart. It's your heart. Second conclusion, this problem of the human heart is universal. Jesus here is not describing the worst of humanity. He's not here talking about the kind of people that we read about in the news who end up being going to prison. He's describing all of us. He's describing me. He's describing you by nature. These are the things that come out of your heart and my heart. Now, you may not have committed all of these things, and your violation of these things may not be as gross and as crass as could be. Do you know why that's so? Because of this thing we call common grace. Not saving grace, but before we were believers, maybe we weren't as bad as we could be because we were restrained by common grace. Common grace is things like the fear of consequences. I would do that, but I'm afraid that if I do it, I might get put in jail. It's a fear of public opinion. I'm concerned about what people think of me, the desire to be respectable. Common grace involves a moral upbringing or a natural temperament. I was in college in the late 60s and early 70s during the first sexual revolution. We're in the midst of another one that is massive. But that was the first sexual revolution. There were drugs, there was alcohol, there was promiscuity, immorality all around me. By the common grace of God, I did not indulge in any of those things. Why? Because I was a good person? Absolutely not. I was just as wretched and self-centered a sinner as anybody. I needed the grace of God in the gospel. But it was probably because I grew up in a loving home with loving parents, and it's probably because my natural temperament is to be cautious rather than reckless. So I was spared those things, not because I was good, but because of the common grace of God. So you know, it may not be the worst example of these things, but it's only because the common grace of God has restrained you. So conclusion number two, the problem of the human heart is universal. Every one of us has the roots and seeds of every one of these sins in our hearts. Well, let me make some applications. Application number one, reject any teaching that denies human depravity or shifts the source of human defilement away from the human heart. First of all, reject any teaching that denies human depravity. It's kind of hard to do in our day, isn't it? But there are some who do it. I pick on Joel Osteen a lot, and I should, because he fills a stadium with beguiled people who listen to him. He has an anti-gospel. 
He doesn't talk about sin. He flatters people. He makes it sound as though the chief end of God is to glorify man rather than the chief end of man to glorify God. He flatters you with kind words, how wonderful you are, how you're a Ferrari and you have all the extras and God just loves you and you're just so special. That's not what Jesus said. That's anti-Christ and anti-gospel. Don't believe anybody who's going to tell you man is basically good. It's not what Jesus says. And also reject any teaching that shifts the source of human defilement away from the human heart. When you misdiagnose the problem, you inevitably misdiagnose the prescribed remedy. One source of misdiagnosis of the human problem is humanistic psychology. You go to a, a, a secular counselor, and they're never going to operate with the assumption you've got a wicked, sinful heart because they don't have that view of man. They have to blame someone else. You know, the interesting thing about secular psychology is they're supposed to fix people, right? You go to a counselor to get fixed. Decades ago, Jay Adams wrote an article, and the title of it was, Change Them Into What? What are they supposed to look like when they're fixed? How, without God in the Bible, do you know what you're supposed to look like? What is normal? You can't know what is aberrant and abnormal if you don't know what is normal, right? What are, you gonna, what are they going to look like when they're all fixed? We have an answer. Jesus. When I counsel myself or I counsel somebody else, I'm going to measure you against Jesus. Whatever's not like Jesus, that's what's abnormal. And the goal is to make you like Jesus. We know Jesus is the pattern. Secular psychology has no model. But even when they call something aberrant, aberrant and abnormal, what are they going to blame? They're not going to blame your heart. You're going to have to blame it on someone else, on something else. It's society's fault. It's your background. It's faulty parenting. You're deprived of certain privileges. It's your lack of education or information. It's your biochemistry. You were born that way. Now, please, in the interest of balance, I'm not making fun of those things. We should not deny the harsh and ugly reality of some of those things as influences upon people. We should be very sensitive to some of those things. But the point is, all of those things are not determinative of what you are. When you blame anything other than your heart, the diagnosis is wrong, and therefore the remedy has got to be wrong. If the problem is your environment, well, you just need a change of scenery, and you'll be all better. If your problem is ignorance, well, you just need more education. If your problem is your biochemistry, well, your savior then becomes a pill or a lot of pills. But if your problem is a polluted, wretched heart, there's a wonderful solution for that. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. There's a wonderful solution to a bad heart. Jesus, he gives a new heart and he sanctifies that heart until glory. But any teaching that puts the source of the human problem other than the human heart is anti-gospel and anti-Christ. Another source of misdiagnosis of human defilement is ceremonial religion. Some of us grew up in ceremonial religion. You got a problem. You want to be fixed. You want to be right with God. You don't need regeneration and a new heart. You just need to dip your fingers in a little holy water 
You just need to partake of that little wafer. You just need to pray with beads, and you'll be okay. And it never touches our heart. Another source, the final source of misdiagnosis is demons. The devil made you do it. Your problem is all about demons. Now, demons are very real players in this world, in this human drama, but they are not the cause of your problem. I have said, and I'll say again, if the, if the devil and his demons were exterminated today, the world would be filled with sin tomorrow because you can't blame the devil. The devil has nothing on you unless you agree to do what he tempts you to do. The problem is not the devil, ultimately. It is your human heart, which is the fountain of all sin, or as John Calvin called it, a factory of idols. So beware of counterfeit diagnoses because you're going to have a counterfeit prescription. They are anti-gospel. They're anti-Christ. Here's a second application. We should be humbled by the revelation of the human heart given by Jesus. When you look at this and you say, you know, that's me by nature. These are the things that come out of my heart. And, you know, not only do I have the roots of those things, but in some cases there are some shoots and sometimes even some full-grown plants of those things in my own life. After you look at that diagnosis and you realize that's me, can you strut around like a proud peacock with a humanistic view of yourself that says man is the center of all things? I trust not. When we look at what Jesus says about us, we should not love what we are by nature, we should loathe what we are by nature. But thirdly, in light of this, we should be unspeakably grateful for the grace of God in the gospel. Is your life no longer characterized by the ugly deeds of the flesh that we started out with this morning? Is your life no longer characterized by these sins that Jesus gives out of the heart of man, evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries. Is your heart no longer characterized by those things? Oh, you fall into them, but is that not who you are? But rather, are you more characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness? Not perfect, but real. Why is it? Why is it that the deeds of the flesh no longer characterize you, but the fruit of the Spirit? Here is our answer in Ephesians chapter 2, after describing man a slave to the, to the world, the devil and the flesh, he says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God foreordained that we should walk in them. Are you different than that catalog described in Mark 7? It's because of this precious, but God, but God in sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, not because you deserved it or had any power, sovereign grace and sovereign mercy came and regenerated your heart and made you new and is continuing to make you new. I say, we should be unspeakably grateful for the grace of God in the gospel. And then fourth of fifth, 
This being true of our human hearts, let's be diligent to watch over. Be diligent to watch over your heart. If the heart is the spring of all of our trouble, we need to be careful to watch over our hearts. Listen to Proverbs 4, 23 and following. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, put devious speech far from you, let your eyes look directly ahead, let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you, watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. How do we guard our mouth, our eyes, and our feet? By watching over our heart with all diligence. Brothers and sisters, when you have time with God in his word and in prayer and in self-examination, don't merely evaluate yourself based on your behavior. That's Pharisaism. Ask God to show you your heart. What are my motivations? When I'm angry, when I'm fearful, when I'm worried, what am I putting ahead of God? What am I worshiping instead of worshiping God? What am I trusting instead of trusting God? What's the problem at the heart level? We don't want to merely change our behavior. We want God to deal with us at a deep heart level because that's the problem. So be diligent to watch over your heart. Otherwise, your religion and mine is no better than the Pharisees. And then finally, as we have opportunity to counsel others, and we do want to first counsel ourselves, but we want to help others, don't we? Counsel them according to this basic framework. Surely, we should be sensitive. When we're trying to help a brother or sister, we should be sensitive to and take into account many things, their upbringing, their environment, their family background. What kinds of abuse have they suffered? Because these are very real and painful things, and we need to weep with those who weep. What about their body chemistry? All these have a formative influence, but we fail to be biblical and Christian counselors if we fail to lay blame ultimately on the human heart. Because as Jesus said, out of the heart of man proceeds. Every person we will ever, ever try to help is both a victim and a victimizer. We are victims. We have suffered from the sins of others. We need to be sensitive to that. And like I said, we need to weep with those who weep. But you're never just a victim. You're a sinner. People we help will be sinners. And if, if we blame everything else but their heart, we'll never get to the solution. Ultimately, after sympathizing with all the sins that have been done against them, we have to come back to the fact, but you yourself are a sinner. And that's loving because there's good news when we say the problem is your heart because there's a solution to the bad heart. Jesus died to give us a new heart in regeneration and then to sanctify that heart progressively until he takes us to glory. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we bow before you above all the intelligentsia, above all the philosophers of the world who cannot figure out the human problem. In a sentence, you told us the problem out of the heart of man precedes all these things. And in your grace, you provided a solution in coming and dying in our place to not only forgive us, but to change us. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Help us to live at a heart level and to seek to help one another at a heart level. We ask in your name.